few weeks ago, we discussed the utility of the hacker's mindset in all manner of situations. What if I told you that the hacker's mentality is far older than the term itself? On this week's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Ben McCarty, author of Cyber Jutsu, Cybersecurity for the Modern Ninja, to discuss the parallels between the practices of world-class, cutting-edge cybersecurity professionals and those of elite Japanese warriors hundreds of years ago, as well as what the latter can teach the former. Ben McCarty is an American author, veteran, inventor, and cybersecurity professional. He's a former cyber capability developer with the National Security Agency and served as a cyber warfare specialist in the U.S. Army. He has multiple security certifications, patents, and years of experience working in the security industry. Ben, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank, thank you. So my first question is probably the most technical. Um, are you a ninja? No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> Good. Uh, well, I'm glad we got that out of the way. Um so given that you're not a ninja, uh, but you are maybe um, uh, very skilled in the dark arts of cybersecurity, what was your idea behind the book? Um, yeah, sure. So um, a- after kind of, you know, doing cyber warfare work at the NSA and um, working for a private threat intelligence company where uh, my job was to specialize in foreign adversary, uh, advanced persistent threat groups, uh, just kind of grinding through that every day, trying to figure out what, what I could learn, what I could predict, what I could assess. And, uh, it was a combination of wanting to see what I could learn or think about as, as a thought exercise and, you know, have some fun with it. And, um, it just so happened around the same time, you know, when, when I was starting to feel a bit, uh, you know, like the job was starting to become a grind, these scrolls started becoming translated into English. And the, these scrolls are 400-year-old uh, scrolls, you know, written by real ninjas back back in the day when they were, you know, doing ninja stuff every day. Yeah. And I mean, I, so I love the, uh, I love the artwork on this, uh, on this book. Um and uh, I, I've just, it just came out. So I've been kind of working through it, um, really enjoying. It. So the, the introduction is kind of interesting because as you illuminated, um, you know, these scrolls were, were really real. I mean, we think top secret security clearances are like a big deal. Like uh, I think there was like the death penalty for, um, for releasing these scrolls to, to, to non-ninja types. Um, uh, so, so the Japanese government had only declassified them if i got this right after like world war ii is that is that right um yep yeah so so you start reading these uh as you're as you're you're working through your day job and you're realizing um did you was the immediate nature was the nature of uh the relationship between cybersecurity and and uh and the way of the ninja apparent to you as you were reading this or was it sort of once you started getting through them, you, 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 you how, how, how immediate was the relationship? I, I would say it was, it was fairly immediate. Um, there are some things you have to kind of look past or look over where there's like, you know, like ninja spells or ninja magic. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't touch any of that stuff, but like once you start getting into like the real practical things going on and like how to conduct espionage or how to conduct sabotage, how to conduct, uh, 
you know, uh, the, these these infiltration into fortified organizations I was like, oh, this is absolutely related to cybersecurity. And I was seeing such unique insights that it was it, it was just not possible for me to ignore. So it just I, it just kept gnawing at the back of my head for, you know, years. It was like, you know, you should do something with this. And then, you know, eventually it just uh, built up and I got enough, I guess, willpower to write a book about it. Yeah, I mean, so first off, I guess we should start with like what actually was a ninja um, because I know, you know, growing up as a kid, you think about um, dressing up in all black and throwing like ninja stars and stuff. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, what was the what was the sort of functional um, purpose of, of a ninja, uh, a group of ninjas? What, is there, is a, is there a, a, a noun for a group of ninjas? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I guess the, the closest word would be shinobi. I, I think uh, plural. It's shinobi is you know one or multiple. Um, the primary function of ninja were espionage, right? Uh, uh, the Hollywood version would have us believe their primary function was assassination or or other things, but espionage was their primary function, and then. Um, depending on which period of, of feudal Japan you were in on the level of conflict, their secondary function may then be uh, enabling other armies to either take that fortification or castle or, or uh, somehow uh, enable other kind of warfare actions. Right. And, and I guess the, uh, this is, the reason that um, the relationship between shinobi and uh, cybersecurity is is so clear is because you know a big function of what you're saying is you know subverting fortifications right or or getting a sense of what lay ahead of uh, of you if you're if you're trying to take something by force and um, you know in general, uh, advanced persistent threats, uh, have very similar goals to that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, mo most of them are espionage first. We have seen some depending on their tasking orders, they then do do, uh, destructive attacks or sometimes take actions to enable f further attacks or strategic goals you know, if, if they are nation state associated. Right. So that's the synthesis of the book is you're taking some of these very old tried and true principles for subverting a vastly more uh, fortified structure with like a very asymmetric threat, which, you know, that, that, that is, that is uh, kind of very close to what a lot of cybersecurity professionals uh, spend a lot of time doing and you break these down into kind of digestible chunks, um, you know, one sort of lesson per per chapter. Can you tell me a little bit about how you how you first off um, distilled thousands of pages of uh, of ninja scrolls into into um, into what was it twenty or so lessons? Uh, I mean, maybe we can start there. What, where did you pick that set of twenty from? It was really kind of reading the original translated scrolls multiple times until I uh, kind of had internalized the knowledge. I know, I know that's not in a very efficient way of breaking it down, but I tend to just eat things whole 
and then the, it gets processed internally into me until it makes sense. And then, then I can move forward from there. But there was obvious things where there was almost like a, a, a parallel relationship to things that you could say it was a very close analogy to cyber, or sometimes it was directly physical. Um, the, there's techniques and tools talking about lockpicks. You know, we still have locks today and locks are still important in, in terms of like cyberspace because, you know, physical access to those machines, you know, if you allow an adversary that access, they can gain root or admin privileges. And, uh, you know, it's, it was kind of the same back in the ninja days. The, 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 the sensitive or protected stuff had locks on it and they were figuring out how to pick those locks or bypass those physical locks. Um, the more kind of like uh, strange or interesting ones where I saw repeated advice and I was like, well, this seems important to them. So I should try to understand why, why this would work in a book or what, what we could learn in cyberspace from this. And uh, maybe a few of them are a little stretched, but uh, there's still some interesting insights. Uh, the, the other part of the, the kind of chapters is, is I looked at the, the primary Ninja Scroll, the Banshee Kai, and the way it was laid out in its guidance and descriptions. And I kind of borrowed the, the same kind of collection of techniques and thoughts and principles. Yeah. And I mean, it, it definitely, to me at least, seems like something that can be digested more or less in any order. I think that the, the, the chapters seem relatively self-contained, but did you, did you, did they sort of build on each other in some sort of way or did you have, uh, give me a sense of how you like laid them out? Uh, yeah. It, so, um, the, like in the Banshee Kai, right? So this is a, one of those 400 year old scrolls. Uh, the guidance they kind of started with, uh, it was written by ninjas, but to be used by a general. And they were kind of describing a step-by-step -step process of like, uh, here, here's a catalog of what we can do and here's why it's important. Here's how you should use us. Um, the, one of the first ones they talked about was mapping to these generals. So then that's, that's why I chose to do network mapping for my first chapter. And that, uh, it, you know, it made the most logical sense. And, and if you look at other kind of frameworks like SANS Top 20 or, or, you know, other guidance, it says like, hey, first thing you need to do is get that kind of asset inventory, try to build a network map, you know, and that, and that uh, seemed to align with what I had previously seen or been taught. Yeah, I mean, um, well, the analogy is is pretty um, immediate from like a, a castle or a fort to a, uh, you know, to a guarded network, um, especially as they're traditionally designed. I mean, I think like zero trust architectures and things kind of maybe uh, go in a, in a little bit of a different direction. But, um, you know, so maybe let's dig into that chapter a little bit, um, mapping networks. So it says, um, with these maps, the general can consider how to defend and attack a castle. Okay. And, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. So what, one of the, the first things, um, that I, I remember getting instruction on in the, the army was how, how to do these kind of very specialized network maps and the, that same instruction seemed to mirror what the, the ninja scrolls were saying on these maps. Uh, 
these weren't like typical cartographer maps, you know, we're like, Hey, we're drawing topology and like, Hey, here's its location. And here's some names and labels. It was contextualized in such a way that either uh, other ninjas or uh, uh, an invading army could plan attacks like, Hey, how many, how many soldiers or how many people could I push through this road? Will it make a lot of noise? Will it, um, is there any blind spots? Is, is, is these castle walls, like, what are they made of? Are they weak? Could I push them down? Could I uh, burn them? Uh, just kind of describing the sense in that way, rather than like a cartographer view where it's just like, Hey, I'm drawing this as, as accurate as possible. It, it, you're losing a lot of information in either uh, a defender or uh, adversary would want to know to, to better plan and, and contextualize. So, I also include a lot of, I guess my, I guess you would call it my experience and cynicism of when I've worked in, you know, in, in the industry where I'm working in SOCs or I'm working in network engineering centers and we're, we're trying our best to protect these organizations and uh, the, the network maps I've seen used look what I <laughs> look very close to that simplified, very bad network map. And then I, you know, try to try to provide my best interpretation of what I think a, a good network map would be and how it could be useful. Because there's just been so many situations where they don't have a network map or when they do, it's just a bunch of, you know, cloudy bubbles. And there's there's no real relationship or understanding of what's out there. And, and, and uh, right. yeah, if, it, if it's even up to date. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, well, I mean, it's, it's like you, it's like you say in the chapter, it's, it's to attack and defend. Right. And so ironically, I feel like sometimes, uh, attackers have a better understanding of the terrain, uh, than, than the defenders, you know, because yeah, it's like the first thing you do, right. When you're in, and I think, um, I mean, all of these chapters are so interesting and, you know, I, I think we could probably spend hours digging through each one, but one of them that, um, I thought was particularly interesting was, um, was sensors. You said, you know, whether day or night scouts for a far distance observation should be sent out. Um, sensors obviously have like an important interplay with the network map, right? Mm -hmm. Um, give me a sense of like, how did ninjas use sensors, uh, back in the day to achieve their ends? And how is that related to how an attacker can do the same thing? Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about sensors from the the ninja perspective, you have to think that um, a lot of these these lords or generals were hiring ninjas for two purposes: one for offense, one for defense. Right? Like they needed to protect their own fortifications against enemy ninja, and apparently the best way to do that was you know to hire other ninja to do that. Um, Reminds me a lot of uh, root kits and EDR to uh, <laughs> you know these days. <laughs> uh, so the castle would have already had like your typical watch post and gate guards, you know, monitoring the na- the main egress and you know in and out of the the castle. But the these ninja scouts would have been placed at locations where the ninja believed the adversary would come from. Either there's like a certain hill, there's a certain like maybe blind spot or uh, a natural direction that uh, an invading force would likely take. 
and they took three kind of interesting approaches to to being able to detect an invading force or other ninjas. One of them was these kind of listening and smelling scouts where they would have a trained dog with them and they would be in like a hidden shelter kind of camouflaged. And uh, so the idea was this, this camouflage shrouded thing, they couldn't see out. And if there was any enemies coming, they couldn't see that there was a, a hidden, you know, sensor like a ninja and his dog in this uh, occluded um, outpost. But because they were focused on smelling and hearing rather than seeing, it kind of enabled them to kind of detect what wasn't happening without being seen themselves. And then there was this third type of sensor that's mentioned in the scrolls. It's this kind of foot scout where it's almost like you're in borderline enemy territory or you're on the edge of your, your province, but then you look towards your province rather than looking at where the enemy is. And it's almost that way. You can almost see the, the, the backs of the enemies as they're trying to invade. And that, uh, that that's like an interesting concept that I haven't seen anyone really do maybe with the trusted internet connections where you partner with your ISP at like a border gateway and say like, Hey, I want to know what's, what's happening. Even though I already have my perimeter, I want to know what you see from your perimeter looking into me. And that's like an external looking in, which I thought was, you know, uh, interesting and could be used in new ways. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And I also found myself thinking about, well, I mean, I think these are all super important defensive techniques. You know, you think about counterintelligence and human intelligence are two sides of the same coin. It's just, you know, who, who's the, who's the target, you know? Um, I, I was thinking about, uh, applications for, you know, pen testers, uh, as well to say, well, what kinds of sensors do you as an attacker need to have, um, for example, to evade the defenders or to know whether the defenders have discovered you and, um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, that you need to either, um, pretend like you got, got out or, you know, sort of show, do a compromise somewhere else and then maintain persistence, you know, in, in a different place. Like there's also value to the, to the attacker kind of like having a, a finger on the pulse, I, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in the, in the ninja scrolls, they, they mentioned, uh, infiltrating ninjas having to kind of do these kind of like, which I guess you would call them sentry kind of tests or checks where they might purposely sneak next to some guards. Imagine that those guards are like your sock or, or whatever. Uh, and they would whisper loud, like continually whispering louder and louder until the guards either heard them or took notice. And that was a way for them to determine, hey, what's the noise threshold here that I can make without getting caught? Like what... How, how acute are these guys hearing? How are they paying attention? How, how sleepy are they? When they do hear or see something, what, what, what do they notice about me? Uh, and, you know, they take it as far as even getting like wooden clappers out and kind of banging them together at night to see, see what the reactions of the guards are. And, um, and if I had to imagine what that could look like for like a red team, 
I, I would I would imagine if they could somehow gain uh, unauthorized access to the security team's own ticketing tool, like, you know, when the alerts or incidents are being investigated, they could observe like, hey, is, uh, is my attack or traffic being investigated at the moment? Right. And yeah, it's, it's just uh, it's it's interesting to think about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the, there, there's so many different ways to take some of these lessons that um, you could probably uh, spin endlessly. You know, um, I noticed that a recurring theme um, in some of the Shinobi writing uh, was was the moon. Uh, what is? I mean, besides, I think the it seems to me that night and the cloak of darkness is like an important technique for ninjas to use and the moon is often visible at night. Um, what is the like kind of symbolism of, of the moon and why is it mentioned in, in, in a couple of these chapters? The, you know, I guess first and foremost, like depending if the moon is full or not drastically changes night vision. Um, so I think the moon was likely in their mind. One thing that's in the scrolls I didn't write about in the book though is they said on a full night, they would actually switch their clothes from that kind of dark red um, or even like a dark blue, uh, depending on what they were doing, um, to like a white. And that's the mm -hmm. idea that the, the reflections from that moon would be, they, they would blend in as like a reflection rather than a deep shadow. Because like a, a shadow deeper than what a natural shadow is would, would still be de detected as movement. But the, there's a couple of weird mytholo mythological kind of Japanese fairy tales that includes the moon. The most interesting one is this one of Katsugori. Uh, sorry, my Japanese horrible. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's the idea of this ghost that lives on the moon and he has like these, these he's growing like trees on the moon. And uh, if you knew how to seek him out, like there was like almost like a like a magic door knocker somehow to signal to him that you wanted to come talk to him. He would transport you to the moon and then I'll let you eat the leaves of his tree. And then you would also become invisible like a ghost. And then that was some some kind of like children's fairy tale in, you know, medieval Japan. Um the the other one was uh if you can imagine at night in like coastal Japan, like a moon over the water, there might be two moons. And like there's this illusionary moon when one's the real moon and and how it kind of just plays tricks. It's just, yeah, you know, there's some interesting ideas there. And you related uh, in one of the chapters, um, I think it was called the ghost of the moon or ghost on the moon. This idea of, uh, well, I mean, it's getting a lot of attention these days of supply chain attacks, um, whether that's through hardware or, you know, firmware that's implanted on something that you bring into your castle, bring into your, your, your network, um, or it's increasingly, um, you know, software supply chains. So you're pulling in these third party dependencies to build your software systems and unwittingly, pulling malicious code potentially uh, or at the very least vulnerabilities from your third party code into, you know, the, the things that you're, you're trying to do. Um, what is the relationship between that story um, uh, about the, the leaves and visibility and, and the, the, the supply chain attack? Yeah. So the, the technique um, called the art 
of the you know the ghost on the moon the, the ninjas weren't actually teleporting to the moon or talking to ghosts but what they would do is the same concept of of getting someone in a far remote location to somehow invite you and conceal you uh, so what they would do is years before the kind of need arised they would find someone who they could plant in the enemy kind of organization or castle. Uh, and this person would be uh, talented enough and smart enough that, that uh, they could get deep into that organization, be trusted and have enough influence to, to maybe see what the private plans are, but also have enough control that they could come or go freely or communicate freely without suspicion. So when maybe this faction or this castle finally did become under attack, the ninja could contact his, his plant that he had planted there several years prior and say, hey, uh, can you help me get in or tell me what the Lord's thinking or, or where, where's the weak spots? Like, where, where's, you know, or, or do something on my behalf to help me get in and infiltrate. And this is that idea that kind of uh, ghost on the moon. But when we start to think about like hardware implants, right? Uh, I, I compare it to trying to um, find a ghost on the moon with a telescope. Like if you're, if, you're, if you're looking at these hardware circuits with a microscope or an X-ray and you're trying to find something out of place, is, is there something on this motherboard that's allowing remote access over some kind of unfiltered or un, unauthorized channel that would allow remote access compromise to my machine. You're, it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel harder than a needle in a haystack because some of these can be embedded under such uh, chip layers that it may not even be visible under a microscope. And it's, it just seems so hard to, to find. I, yeah. Uh, they're, they're putting uh, ICs in like the, the vias of PCBs now. So it's not even on the IC. It's like in the actual printed circuit board. I mean, it just, it gets, it gets so ridiculously hard to try to find things in hardware. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Another chapter I really liked was uh, fire attack um, because, you know, you think about espionage, you think about intelligence community groups, you think about, um, ultimate stealth, right? Uh, you think about an organization that if it had its way, you just never know about it. You'd never, you never hear about any of the operations that it does. It's just, um, flying low and slow and never gets caught. Um, but fire attack was sort and, and, and there are a lot of chapters that sort of deal in that kind of an idea. And then fire attack, um, starts with this, this parable that says, you know, first it is easy to set fires. Second, it is not easy for the enemy to put out the fire. And third, if your allies are coming to attack the castle at the same time, the enemy will lose any advantage as the fortifications will be understaffed. And so um, this is a quite a different kind of um, access, I think, from, from a lot of the book. Tell me a little bit about your inspiration for, for this chapter. Yeah, so large sections of the Ninja Scrolls just have hundreds of fire recipes. And I, I was, I was so confused. It was like, why do you need a hundred different ways to set fires? And why, why all these different kind of fires? And that's when I realized during 
the like the particularly warring periods of Japan, the fire attack became uh, one of the easiest and best ways to win uh, a siege, Ra- rather than trying to you know surround a fortification or castle and hold it out for months and hope they you know run out of food or or try to scale the walls. You just send one ninja in there. And then he will find the right place and time to start a fire. And he'll kindle that fire and try to keep it, you know, hidden or unnoticed so long enough that it eventually becomes like a raging inferno. And it starts compromising the integrity of the fortification inhabitants. So then now your, your, your castle or gate, you know, guards, they have the choice between putting out the fire or defending against this siege that just so happened to happen at the same time this this fire became visible and you know and it's it's just it's just a losing game of attrition you just you just can't win in that scenario and um uh, i noticed uh, a lot of uh cyber attacks have started to pivot to the ability to cause destruction or um you know it's I I don't even know if you want me to mention it, but that uh, the recent pipeline thing that just was in the sure. news, yeah, colonial, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that one's slightly different, but still, like the the ability of these cyber threats to spread like fire and cause destruction and impact business and operations and and have real world consequences because the 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 physical world and cyber world are you know slowly converging. Uh, and their overlap with each other. It's just, it just, beca- it just became obvious to me that this, this is like an important problem that's likely going to continue to escalate. And we need to start thinking about how to, to deal with an adversary infiltrating your organization with the intent to cause fire attacks. And uh, that that's again, where I feel like this, this historical research is so useful because these these went on for hundreds of years. You know, the, the ninjas, we, we apparently have, you know, evidence of them from 12th century, but it goes back even further, like to, you know, 200 uh, BC, if, you know, in China. Um, they kind of refine these, you know, over centuries, these kind of attack techniques. And then the defenders had to learn how to respond to it. Otherwise, you know, they just lost. So you saw this evolution and maturity happen and uh, you know this is another great example where we can learn a lot about the past and how we could uh, mature our responses and approaches to cyber threats right yeah and i think you touched on a like really important theme uh which is uh, not only i mean in, in in the colonial pipeline example you had both ransomware and ot impacts you know operational technology but um you know ransomware has had pretty serious consequences over the past decade starting with you know um sony you know um and and uh and the, the the major damage that was caused by basically locking locking um uh, an enterprise out of data you know but we started seeing effects of um 
denying IT infrastructure on operations. I mean, there was um, on the East Coast here, there were a couple of examples. I think it was like the county of um, the county of Baltimore <clears throat> couldn't uh, process real estate transactions because their systems for title transfer and deeds was like down um, because of ransomware. No. You've had examples where locomotive operators um, or Maersk, you know, have been able to, un, unable to do operations because of ransomware. Um, but now with the convergence of operational technology systems and IT systems, now it's just not just like a denial of, of a system, but there's a potential for an attacker to actually repurpose functionality in the system by issuing it commands, you know, like kind of gaining control and issuing commands to this OT where you can cause physical destruction uh, in, 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 the, in the real world. You know, um, we saw some pretty bespoke examples of this. Um, you know, in, in, in the news with, with various, um, you know, attacks against some nation state, um, you know, nuclear reactors and that sort of thing. But we're seeing real attacks against municipalities, right? <laughs> and yeah. it's not, yeah. and it's not like, it's like super sophisticated stuff necessarily. I mean, I think, um, the Oldsmar water supply was like a team viewer instance that was just out on the internet, you know? Um, but yeah, so, so I, I think it's a really topical chapter. What are some of the things that, um, you know, putting on the defensive hat for a second, what are some of the things that, uh, uh, we can do to become more resilient against the fire attack? Yeah. Yeah. So if we look at what the kind of historical scrolls recommended, they first said, you know, you should try to fireproof your fortification, um, in the, in the earlier periods, most of these fortifications were just made of wood. So, they're, they're, you know, it takes time to build like a proper castle made of stone. But um, they also had a lot of fire teams and kind of like Firewatch constantly patrolling, looking for fire. Uh, and they, I think they practiced kind of like fire drills, right? You know, like, hey, if there was a fire, let's, let's you know, make, make sure we have the capability to put it out. I don't, I don't think anyone's really trying ransomware drills and even if we were to do something more simple like backup drills people will go yeah we have backups but when when's the last time you tested your backup <laughs> you know um just, just being able to do those kind of things i helps prepare you uh, another interesting one in the scrolls is they would pre-identify certain buildings or construct the fortification in such a way that they could create like fire breaks. They're like, Hey, this building is inconsequential. We could pull it down, destroy it, rip it apart real quick. So then the fire couldn't spread uh, to more strategic or important parts of the fortification. So like, again, in this IT versus OT there, there normally is a separation uh, but the way they've done the firewalling to, to allow remote access, I understand you need that information flow, but a kind of firebreak line where maybe I could disconnect certain parts of the network and keep other parts operational without turning everything off, you know, and, and, and crippling uh, oil supply lines that like, I think, I think that would be a really interesting idea on how to approach like self-propagating or replicating threats or malware. So you could self-isolate with almost like a, like a, a solenoid switch and uh, right. Yep. 
It's an interesting idea, and I don't think we, I don't think I've seen that defensive technique uh, implemented. But maybe we can uh, we can take a page out of the Ninja Handbook. And uh, <laughs> I've I've seen it one place where uh, at the at a federal department where they had uh, kind of like. Uh, agricultural futures information and they they had uh, they were only allowed to release it at a certain time to prevent you know like insider trading or whatever right uh, they actually had a solenoid on the wall that then <laughs> reconnected it to the network so then all of the the reporters or journalists in the room could then send their emails to their editors so this you know analysis and information could be published but that that was for a single you know it was against insider trading or early right early notice rather than actual cyber threats. Right. Right. Yeah. makes sense. Um, I, I also really liked the, the chapter about zero trust threat management. Um, I like the way you lay it out in here, which is, you know, you, you're, you're basically going from, um, block the known bad to stranger danger, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which I liked a lot. Um, I thought that was like a pretty interesting way of, of thinking about it. And the the corollary in the 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 ninja ethos was um, <clears throat> said here: if you enter a room from the rear and there's someone in the room who is not asleep, then they will not suspect you as an intruder. <laughs> it, it is because those who come from the rear are not considered possible thieves or assailants. So it's the it's the notion that there's sort of like you know this 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 perimeter out front, and that's where the enemy comes from. And if you're coming from this way, it's you're 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 somehow aligned with me and in, in facing forward. I don't know if that comes from like our you know monkey brain or something like that, yeah. but. Um, yeah, it was I'm mean, very interesting chapter. Was zero trust the first thing that came to mind when you when you read uh, when you read that in the scrolls? That one that one was difficult because I think we it was one of the few chapters we kind of tried a couple names on because none of the names really fit correctly. I think the original name was kind of like zero suspicion, which you know isn't a thing, <laughs> you know, but that that's closer to what. Uh, I guess the spirit of the scrolls kind of said is you don't allow maybe suspicious activity to, to happen in such a way that it could have enabled an adversary to conduct infiltration or espionage or other types of attack. So the, the, the scrolls talk about, you know, maybe these merchants are coming and, you know, your soldiers, you know, they've, they've, you know, been stationed at this fort for, you know, months or not, if not years and they're, and they're bored and they want some free time or they want to buy something cool. Uh, it, you know, yeah, these merchants, you know, have some business here and they're, and they're, and they're selling legitimate things, but that, that interaction, that distraction, that, that creates this opportunity where something could happen. Even if this is like, you know, just a, a normal merchant, it, it, there was all these different, opportunities that arose that the ninjas would would take advantage from these situations so the commanders started creating these policies where they just don't don't allow this activity to happen anywhere near the castle and uh, and i think uh, about how how you could kind of enable that same kind of zero suspicion or zero trust kind of threat approach for for how to you know let employees do what they want to do but to you know, maintain a certain protection or safeguard level on your network. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the reason probably um, 
you found more difficulty articulating a title for this concept than some of the other ones uh, is maybe because this is one of the frontiers of cybersecurity. It's not figured out yet, right? Like there aren't patterns built into the way that we defend and attack networks. Well, certainly attack, but defend networks that 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 take into account this kind of technique. You know, um, I think it's a challenge for um, it's a challenge for defenders that you know we have to sort of assume. Um, there's, there's an assumption that traffic's good until proven otherwise, you know? Um, and I think we're really seeing, especially with COVID over the past year, we're seeing a blurring of the lines between inside and outside of perimeter, right? I mean, you got people that are logging in from their homes, which are, you should be assuming that those are hostile environments, you know, um, with, with, with the proliferation of like just crazy amounts of stuff that get plugged into home networks. And, um, Taking some of these principles in mind, to me, seems like it makes a ton of sense, but I, I think we're still trying to figure out what that looks like in practice. Um, but speaking of in practice, you um, you end every one of the chapters in a way that I really liked, which was with these castle theory thought exercises. What was your what, what are those, and what was your thinking behind them? Yeah, so there, there's a there's a couple of thoughts on that one. One, I. I I wanted the readers to actually kind of develop mental tools. You know, the, the whole idea of, you know, teach a person to fish versus giving them a fish. I really think um, kind of developing mental models and mental tools to approach problems is, is really key for cybersecurity because the, the tech's changing so fast that I, I tried to keep it as uh, uh, non-technical as possible to avoid, uh, you know, it, 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 turning old shelf kind of it, it kind of helps put it in perspective of a um a problem we all understand you have an adversary breaking into a castle you know the castle has walls and and, and it's a ninja and you, you want to stop them uh some of these ones have known answers if you read the scrolls you'll see how the the commanders tried to implement certain ones other ones don't really have uh, like a clear answer. Uh, I don't know. It's it's a it's a bit of like for fantasy fulfillment for me too. I don't know if you've ever thought about what if I could go back in a time machine like 400, 500 years ago. Like you know, would, would I be super clever and I you know impress everyone? Like well, so I'm giving you that opportunity, right? You get you get to read what those secret ninja techniques were. And then now you're, you're in theory going back in time and you're trying to defend this castle against a threat you understand, right? There's no, there's no fancy technology here. It's just, you know, people walking in, walking in through the doors, like how, how are you going to stop it? And if, if you can't solve that core principle, um, you're, you're going to struggle with the cybersecurity side because it's still just, an, uh, an adversary infiltrating your defenses or bypassing them or evading them and, and thinking about those core principles is, is really going to strengthen your ability to approach these, these more technical cyber problems because in, in nature, their, their essence is the same. Right. And I know Ben, you, you, you came from a pretty similar, um, stomping ground, uh, as I did, um, and 
one of the challenges um, I think we faced as maybe more technical people in uniform uh, was oftentimes trying to translate a relatively complicated concept with a lot of nuance um, to an important, you know, to a decision maker who has to make really important decisions. Um, in your book, you actually, I think, very um, accurately describe that, well, um, a lot of problems are actually human problems. They're not technical problems. And so these these folks have um, a lot of expertise in human problems. And so it, it emphasizes all the more uh, the, the, the requirements that technical folks that are responsible for planning, conducting these operations can articulate clearly and accurately what is going on to these, to these people. And I don't know if your experience was similar, but I've found oftentimes that physical analogies, um, can be useful, uh, sort of at first blush and then they get pushed a little bit and the analogy doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't work out anymore. Um, there are obviously, you know, physical analogies in, in a lot of, um, what you've uh, what you've described here, which is you know, sort of the 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 castle being this fortified thing that we need to get into, or we need to infiltrate, or we need to attack, and the ninja code is about how you do that. So it's, it makes it makes a ton of sense. Where are the limits to the analogy? Um, or in other words, did you were there were there certain cybersecurity principles uh, that you you thought maybe I would really like to cover this, but um, honestly, it, it sort of breaks down when I when I try to, or or is it just a perfect mapping and nothing's changed over the past four hundred years? Besides, uh, you know, we're using keyboards instead of shuriken or whatever. Um, I don't know if I have a great great example for you in terms of where these analogies kind of break down. I'll I'll point at one where I think I had it was more aspirational. Um, so in the scrolls, you'll see them talk a lot about just measuring time, like knowing what time it is. And, uh, you know, that's, that's very obvious to us, right? Like I'll look at a watch or look at the sun or, you know, kind of figure out what time of day it is. But for them, you know, medieval Japan, knowing the exact time and being able to coordinate either secret communication or attacks with your allies was apparently incredibly difficult so they had like, a, you know, dozens of techniques for measuring time. And uh, it made me kind of start to think like, well, is time that important in cyberspace as well for adversaries? Um, I would say for for operators, like if you had an operator on keyboard performing the attacks like a human, uh, they, they can check the time themselves. It, it becomes it seems to map more correctly when we start thinking of autonomous threats like malware or um, certain things that are meant to kind of detonate at a specific time, those would need access to time to, to, to operate. So uh, the difference between like the real world and physical world is we don't, we don't control time in the physical world. <laughs> you know, the sun's going to rise and the sun's going to set. There's nothing I can do to stop it. But in a computer or, you know, cyberspace, we can exercise some control over time, you know, either by manually changing, you know, the system time or even freezing uh, the system. Uh, if you've seen certain 
hypervisors. They're able to like freeze time in a virtual machine. Um, or, you know, we could change our NTP servers to advertise false times. And that, and that was like an interesting concept of like, what, what could we do for this specific narrow threat? And, uh, you know, I haven't really seen anyone try to mess with time like that because that, that could cause critical, like, kernel panic failures. You know what I mean? If you start going backwards and forwards in time, that's just computers don't like that. That's So there there wasn't anything really technical for me to stand on and say this could work or this could, you know, but, like, it showed up enough in the scrolls that I knew it was important and I thought it was interesting enough to think about as a potential new defense that uh, I hadn't seen anyone think about or talk about. Yeah, and the, the other one that I was thinking a lot about was the, um, the the ability of malware, like wormable malware to copy itself over and over and over again. And I was thinking about things like the Mirai botnet, right? Which is, I think it's a bit less maybe um, analogous to a castle because you're talking about these like unpatched IoT devices that are just hanging out on the internet and in the, in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and, uh, you know, I was thinking about, is there an analogy to um, the, the ninja code that, uh, that you could apply to how you might defend yourselves against like a DDoS attack, for example, from one of these big botnets or um, uh, as a remediator, like trying to clean these things up. And um, I kind of, I thought maybe there was um, a bit of a mismatch there. I don't know if you have any, any thoughts. So that that one's kind of tricky. When, when immediately when you started talking about cloning, I was thinking of like like shadow clone Naruto, but there, there's none of that in the scrolls. Um, there is uh, something close to like the DDoS uh, in the scrolls, um, but uh, you you bring up an interesting thing that I, I like to think about in terms in terms of innovation and. Um, solving problems sometimes it's about asking new questions that causes you to think differently and i really think you know this is where this helps but uh, the one specifically about the ddos and the scrolls they talk about hey you know when it's raining like in a heavy you know storm you can you can easily carry out a, a lot of ninja activities because you know the sound of the rain there's going to be reduced visibility people won't hear you as well there's not going to be people outside so you you'll be able to act a lot more freely in terms of infiltrating and and conducting your attacks but they uh you know and i was thinking well what what's this what's the cyber equivalent of like a rainstorm and i was thinking of kind of like a ddos right where I'm kind of overwhelming sensors or creating this uh, circumstance where there's poor visibility of attacks going on or it's distracting so people won't be able to see, you know, in the middle of this DDoS if I plan an attack and try to launch something. But, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, it's, all, it's all super interesting to think about. Yeah, uh, well... Um, I know what a tremendous um, accomplishment and relief it is uh, to to complete a book. Um, tell me a little bit about. I mean, I, I think we talked a little bit about the Genesis story about you know you were you were reading these scrolls and you were thinking about your experiences as a cybersecurity professional and that there was just you felt like there was something there and that the 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 analogy needed to be in the world and you 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 needed to write this book so that other people could share in that analogy and. 
I, I would imagine it was also a very clarifying experience for you um, because oftentimes the best way to learn about something or clarify your own thinking is to write about it. Um, tell me a little bit about, and especially with No Starch Press, because it's like one of my favorite publishers. Uh, tell me about that process from you know submitting the book review to sort of working through all the chapters and then finally getting it out there. Yeah, yeah. So I had always read or heard to to try to write as much as possible before submitting it to a publisher. I mean, I just, you know, I didn't, I don't have an agent. I don't, I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I wrote the entire manuscript, you know, and uh, there were several chapters where, you know, just, just basic concepts like confidentiality, integrity, availability. Like, you know, I, I have an understanding of that. I know what that means. But when I was trying to, formally put it down in like academic theory. What does this actually mean? Yeah, I did have to go and stop and like, well, let me go double check on that and like re research and think about it. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it was certainly enlightening. And um, there, there was certain things where in the middle of writing it, I was like, wow, this would, make like a really good idea for like a patent or some kind of invention. So I would uh, kind of edit or remove certain things. I'm like, you know, the readers get to have this, but I'll, I'll keep this other piece for myself, <laughs> you know? Uh, I love it. Uh, and uh, did it take about as long as you thought? I, I guess so. You know what I mean? I guess I'm just like a, uh, my process is slow. I think I probably spent, about four years kind of reading through the ninja books on and off until I finally made the decision and then spent about two years writing it. And then another, you know, year, uh, editing it and going through the copy editing with, with no starch and kind of improving it and, you know, trying to make it flow better. Yeah, it's a, it's a monumental effort, um, and uh, congratulations! I, I I love it. I'm I'm looking forward to diving in a bit more. Um, and so, where where can people learn more about uh, about the book and and uh, and about you? Uh, I uh, I guess I did just set up a website, but like cyberjutsu.info, you can just go there. It's a little <laughs> a little book website, I guess, for myself. Awesome. And then, uh, do you, uh, do you keep a social media presence, Twitter, LinkedIn, anything like that? If people want to reach out. Yeah. I just started a Twitter. I never touched Twitter. Uh, uh, I, APT underscore Ben. I was trying to go like a, a play on words like apt cause you know, it's short for Twitter. Not many words, but you know, advanced persistent threat. That, that's me. Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, welcome to Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, great. Well, Ben, it was awesome having you on the show. I mean, this is just such a fun, uh, and rewarding and exciting, um, uh, book. And I think it really, you know, who doesn't love ninjas? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think it really does a great job of bridging, um, a powerful analogy into something that is um, sometimes inaccessible to really technical people. So I think that's a huge, a huge accomplishment. And it's also um, for practitioners, for people who maybe are technical, uh, to draw some strengths from something, you know, we all played up, uh, played, played uh, dress up uh, being as kids um, uh, to, to, that you can bring into your daily, uh, daily work, you know, ways of thinking about 
um, attacking and defending uh, networks that um, that that come from from a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. Mm-hmm. So um, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to having you on again uh, sometime soon. Okay. Hopefully not before you write your next one in uh, in ten years or whatever. Okay. Yeah, thank, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.